today's Torah portion is right in the middle of the Torah. It's, of course, love your neighbor as yourself. It will be both in the New Testament and in the Torah. And I was listening to Rabbi Foreman the other night, and he has just got an excellent explanation of Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. Basically, his thing is people get crosswise. If you read the Bible, you discover that everybody who is anybody in the Bible has enemies. So having enemies, getting crosswise with people, and all that kind of stuff is part of being human. And what you want to try and do is keep that to a minimum. In other words, you don't want any more enemies than you actually have to make. So what Leviticus 19, 17, and 18 does is gives you a practical way to manage that. And I'm going to talk about it in two contexts. I'm going to talk about it in the context of health of the community, and then I'm going to talk about it in the context of your personal health, as in emotional health, etc. Let's read Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. You shall not hate your neighbor in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And, of course, the sound bite that everybody knows is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the problems is people don't read up until there. And so what we want to do is talk about what leads up to it. The first thing is don't hate your brother in your heart. Notice there's a qualification there. It doesn't say, don't hate your brother. What it says is, don't hate your brother in your heart. Now, what's that mean? Well, what it essentially means is, you can't take the hatred that you feel for your brother and bury it deep inside your heart. And I'm using, by the way, brother generically, not biologically. So your brother does something nasty to you, and you get all fired up and angry and so forth, so far there's no problem. I mean, there is a problem, but it's resolvable. But if you take that and you hide it inside of your heart, and you put a smile on your face, and you bury it in your heart, that's when you start to sin. There's a textbook example of that in the Torah. You all remember the story of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon and Tamar were both children of David. And Amnon and Tamar were half-brother and half-sister. Amnon raped his half-sister. Her brother, Absalom, put a smile on his face and didn't say a word. Two years later, he invites Amnon to go up north to a sheep shearing. And when he gets Amnon separated from the palace and gets him up there to the sheep shearing, he has all of his servants fall upon him and kill him. So he's had this grudge inside of himself for two years. And when he gets the opportunity or creates an opportunity, he kills his brother. Interestingly, Absalom also is the one who leads the rebellion against David, and Absalom himself winds up dying. There's a saying, and I think it's Italian. At least I've heard it in an Italian context. Revenge is a dish best served cold. And the idea there is if you're bearing hatred in your heart, bury it for a while. 
until your enemy forgets about it. Then you strike. And your revenge is much sweeter because it's served cold. So what the Torah is saying is, don't do that. Instead, what it says is, talk to your neighbor. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, which is to say, if your neighbor offends you, go talk to him. And don't incur sin in the process. Now, what's that mean? Well, there are ways to talk to people. So one way to do it would be to catch your neighbor in a public place and berate him and tell him what a scum he is because of what he's done to you. Well, you've gotten it out and on your heart, but what you've done is you've humiliated your neighbor in that process. And the chances of any reconciliation at that point are pretty much nil. So when it says don't incur sin in the process of confronting your neighbor, that's the kind of thing it's talking about. So when you talk to your neighbor, your goal here is to reconcile. It's not, as I say, to humiliate or embarrass or whatever him in public. And then don't seek vengeance or bear a grudge. That's the next thing. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Vengeance and a grudge are two different things. Tell they're spelled differently, right? So vengeance is when you actually do something, as in the case of Amnon and Tamar, where Absalom takes vengeance. Now, there's nothing wrong with vengeance, contrary to what most people think. The problem is personal vengeance. People always quote Romans 13. And what Romans 13 is saying is, you don't do personal vengeance, that's the job of the government. And the government is God's agent in taking vengeance. We have an avenger of blood who avenges the death of a close relative. So vengeance is not the problem. What's the problem is personal vengeance and vendettas. And so the idea then of abstracting vengeance to the state prevents this idea of personal feuds taking over. It becomes, if you will, impersonal and just. And hatred always comes out. If you buried it in your heart, it is going to come out at some point. Usually at a point where it's very destructive, either destructive to you or destructive to your target. So vengeance is active. And I'll give you an example. Proverbs 3.29. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. And the idea there, remember, vengeance is best taken cold. Your neighbor has completely forgotten the incident, but you haven't. And your neighbor then dwells trustingly in the community, not recognizing that there's a little time bomb out there. And what Proverbs said is don't do that. It destroys the community. So everything looks fine on the surface. But with a grudge, it's passive, as opposed to vengeance, which is active. And I'll give you a couple of scriptures there. Psalm 28. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. That's what's going on with Amnon and Tamar. Absalom is smiling, nothing's wrong, but everything is wrong. And then Psalm 12, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, 
for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So the idea is what's happening in your mouth is not the same as what's happening in your heart. That's a grudge. Now, why do people maintain grudges? Well, for one thing, it gives you a feeling of moral superiority. This snake has wronged me, but I'm above all that. I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to take revenge. I am a much better person. So one of the reasons that people bear grudges is for this sense of moral superiority that it gives them. And one of my favorite phrases that I heard from a preacher long ago is bitterness is a poison that you take hoping that it will kill somebody else. So what harboring a grudge does is makes you bitter. And that bitterness is corrosive and it eats away at you. doesn't actually hurt the one that you're bearing a grudge against. It hurts you. But it feels so good when you're doing it, this righteous indignation that you have. So there's a recipe for handling this. And both Yeshua and the Torah talk about it. Now, Yeshua expands on it, so let's take him. So I'm in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Remember, it says, talk to him, but don't bear sin. In other words, talk to him alone first. Don't make this a public thing. Don't embarrass him in front of everybody. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the first thing you do is go to him privately. The second thing you do is go to him with witnesses. Now that does a couple of things. One is if you can't come up with any witnesses, maybe you're the jerk. So if you can get some witnesses to come with you and you've explained your case and they say, yeah, this is really bad then it becomes something that is not just you, but it looks like the problem is your brother as opposed to you're just hypersensitive. And by the way, we have a rash of that in our society right now. Everybody is spring-loaded in the offended position. You didn't use my right pronoun. Getting two or three witnesses in that kind of a thing, I would have trouble with. If you can't get two or three witnesses, you're the jerk. Verse 17, still in Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. In other words, take it public. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remember I said earlier, everybody in the Bible who is anybody has enemies. Fine. This guy's an enemy. All right, you've done your part, you've done your best, this guy is your enemy. And everybody knows it. You know it, he knows it. So it is no longer the case that he is dwelling trustingly beside you, and just all of a sudden out of nowhere, he gets whacked. Now we both understand, we don't like each other, fine. Maybe that will change in the future, but for right now, we're enemies. 
And, by the way, Rabbi Foreman said pretty much the same thing from the perspective of Leviticus. So when you make your case to your brother, there's four things that can happen. Thing one is, as I said earlier, maybe you don't have a case. In other words, you're the jerk. Maybe it was all a misunderstanding. You didn't hear right or whatever, and no offense was intended. It's just a misunderstanding, and you can clear that up. Third thing that can happen is you can say, I apologize. I hurt you. I did it. I was wrong. I apologize. In which case, you have to forgive him, and I'll take you back to Yeshua. Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And then finally, fourth thing that may happen when you confront your brother is he may just blow it off. In other words, say, yeah, I did it, I met it. Deal with it. That's when we treat him as a tax collector because he did it, he doesn't apologize, and okay, fine. Now we're enemies. Cool, we can deal with that. So why don't we do this? Great advice, very few people take it. Why don't we do this? Well, for one thing, if somebody has offended you and you say you are offended, it can be regarded as a sign of weakness. So if somebody pushes one of your buttons and you go to them and say, you pushed one of my buttons, and they go, aha, that's how I get under his skin. So people will hide that to prevent letting people know where their buttons are. Lots of people just don't like confrontation. If I go and confront my brother, there's a real possibility that this is going to turn into a hair-pulling match. And I really don't want to do that. So they, again, just bury it in their hearts. And then a fear, as I say, that you'll just get blown off. He won't listen to you. He doesn't value you enough to hear you, and nobody else does either. In other words, you feel like you're about that tall. So what I'm suggesting to you here is that this sequence that I've given to you is what I would call community hygiene. What it does is it presents vendettas and grudges and that kind of thing, and that's why it's in the Torah, and that's why it's right in the middle. And that's why Yeshua comes back to it over and over. You know, we have a lawyer ask him, what's the most important law in the Torah? Yeshua says, well, how do you read it? What do you think? And the lawyer says, well, love God, love your neighbor. You say, you're right. And then, of course, we go into the Good Samaritan. But the point is, it's right in the middle of the Torah because unresolved grievances are corrosive to the community. Having said that, unresolved grievances are corrosive to you. So what I've done with this sequence is given you an idea of how you keep the community healthy. How do you keep you healthy? That's the next part. And the answer there is forgiveness. Forgiveness is mostly for you. Because if you can't forgive, what you wind up doing with this grudge that you are bearing is that whoever injured you just sort of keeps you being injured without even touching you. As the saying goes, he lives rent-free in your head. 
And so what you wind up doing is re-injuring yourself periodically when this guy may have gone and died. But it's still there. So let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. Those of you who have been here for a while have heard this before, but I really like it. There's a guy named Stephen Marmer, who's a professor at UCLA or someplace. But his thing was on Aish. And he says forgiveness is really too powerful a word. There's too much packed in there. So what he does is he unpacks the word into three concepts. And I like this very much. Remember, if you can't resolve it with your brother, you can treat him as a tax collector. So the idea of forgiveness is not Pollyanna, oh, everything's fine. That's not the idea here. The idea here is to get the community beyond it and get you beyond it. So he breaks it down into three concepts. And they are exoneration, forbearance, and release. They are in ascending degree of importance. The first one is exoneration. And that wipes the slate clean. It's as if the offense had never happened. What it does is it restores the relationship to a full state of innocence. Now, for example, a parent and a child. You've got a two-year-old that stamps his feet, jumps up and down, says, I hate you, Mommy. Anybody ever had a two-year-old do that? Exoneration is appropriate for that kind of a thing because the offender is immature, doesn't completely understand what he's doing. You're the mature one, and at some point he'll grow out of it, and you're not going to keep that around for the rest of your life. So if the perpetrator is truly sorry, in other words, you go to him, you say, you've offended me, and he says, I am sorry, I apologize, I was wrong. He takes full responsibility which is to say, well, yeah, I did it, but you, that's not taking full responsibility. That's sort of a conditional apology. If he asks for forgiveness and gives assurances that he's not going to do it again. Under those circumstances, if you cannot forgive, you're the jerk. He said he's sorry. He said he won't do it again. Unconditional apology. At that point, you must forgive, and if you can't, the problem was with you, not with him. So that's exoneration. That is the best possible outcome. That's as good as it gets. Next one down is forbearance. And there's where you get something like a partial apology. Well, yeah, I did it, and I'm sorry, but you drove me to it. Or if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. So it's an apology, but not a complete one. And the apology may not seem sincere. Sorry. That's an apology, but it's very clear that it isn't sincere. So what you have to do under those circumstances is you've got to quit dwelling on the offense. The problem now is something you've got to do. As I say, most human relationships are not straightforward, cut and dried. You've wronged me. I'm terribly sorry. I apologize. Please forgive me. 
that doesn't happen very often, quite frankly, because people want to justify themselves. They don't want to look like the bad guy. So what you get are these partial apologies and so forth. And what you can do under those circumstances, the first thing you've got to do is quit dwelling on the offense. You've got to get it out of your mind. You've got to give up your fantasies of revenge. Remember, that's what a grudge is, where you have this fantasy of revenge happening at some point. You may not actually take revenge, but you're sort of dwelling on it. You've got this fantasy going. You've got to give that up. You can, however, be watchful. Nobody says that you've got to go around leading with your chin all the time. So it's perfectly acceptable to be a bit wary around this person. Because the person has behaved badly in the past, there's a possibility well in the future. With time and good behavior, it's possible for your relationship with that person to rise to the level of exoneration. So even if you didn't really get a clean apology and a request for forgiveness, over time and good behavior, it may become, okay, fine, person's changed. I don't have to be wary around them anymore. So that's what's forbearance. And then the final one is release. And that's where you don't get any kind of an apology whatsoever. Yeah, I did it and I'm glad. Or words to that effect. Furthermore, the person who offended you may have moved out of the state, may have died. The number of people who have grudges against their dead parents is just legion. And what happens there is there's no possibility of reconciling with the person who has moved out of state or with somebody who may have died or with somebody who just doesn't care that they've stomped on you. Okay, fine. Remember, we can treat them as an enemy and a tax collector. That's allowable. What is not allowable is for you to carry that inside for the rest of your life. So what you want there is forbearance. Now, you may have to continue to operate with this person. In other words, it may be a coworker. So you've got somebody that works with you in the shop, and the guy's a real jerk, at least in your opinion. You've still got to work with this person. Fine. You can just treat him as a tax collector. No problem whatsoever. We don't like each other. Fine. Let's just stay out of each other's way. But what you have to do, again, is release, which is to say, I release this. I am not going to carry this grudge. I am not going to carry it internally. I am not going to harbor fantasies of revenge. I'm letting this go. And, oh, by the way, stay away from me. That's perfectly acceptable. So when I say that there's two aspects to this passage of Scripture, one is community hygiene, the other one is personal hygiene. And what the Leviticus passage is talking about mostly is community hygiene. Try and figure out how you can resolve and live with your neighbor. Go talk to him. Reason with him. If necessary, take two or three witnesses. Try and get it cleared up. But don't carry it in your heart and don't take personal vengeance. And 
if you do carry things in your heart, what Yeshua says is measure for measure. By the measure that you use with your brother, I will measure out to you. That's why forgiveness is so important. First off, from simply a peace standpoint, if you're carrying this around, you're not at peace, and that's not good. But the other part of that is, if you're carrying and bearing grudges against your neighbor, what Yeshua is doing, he says, I'm going to use the same standards on you that you are using on them. That's just the way it works. What I read to you is, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and comes to you seven times and repents, you've got to forgive him seven times. Well, later on, Peter says, well, if my brother sins against me seven times, do I have to forgive him? Yeshua says, 70 times, seven times. And the idea there is, yeah, your brother's kind of a jerk, but you've got to live with him, and he's trying to make it right. You have to accept it. We really don't like that. We sort of want to strike back. Can't do that. Vengeance doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God, and God's agent of vengeance is the government. That's what Romans 13 says. So there's no problem with vengeance. It's just you don't get to do it. So forgive your neighbor.